Now, uh, this week, we are continuing in Lent, week number two, as we go through the book of Mark. And so, again, good morning uh, to, to many of you. My name is Prentice. I get the privilege to be the lead pastor here at Bethany West Seattle. And, uh, and I know that this week, as you come in, uh, as a pastor, one of the privileges I have is to walk alongside people in their lives. And, and even just this week, I know that uh, from talking to many of you, and uh, whether you're here or watching, I know that since we're starting an hour earlier, I, I, I would assume that many will be watching online or watching a little bit later uh, today or this week. I'm actually uh, pleasantly surprised to see your all shiny faces here uh, an hour earlier, the faithful, yes. Uh, but but as, a, as a pastor, I get the privilege to walk alongside people that are going through just tremendous joys and, and goodness in their lives. And we, we worship God and we praise and we give thanks alongside you. And I know that in our community right now, there's heaviness as well. Uh, and in that heaviness, uh, as Jesus did, we, we weep with those who weep. And my hope and prayer is that uh, we become that community as well. And so, again, welcome. Uh, our text this morning comes from Mark chapter 4. Now, last week we, we talked about uh, Mark chapter 1 uh, as we continue and we uh, go through the book of Mark. And we talked about Jesus' identity through his baptism. And that as Jesus is identified as God's son, who God loves, who God is well-pleased, that is the affirmation that Jesus needed in order to go into the wilderness to experience all the troubles and all the temptations and all the pains. And, and our hope and our learning from last week is that to know that you are loved, you are the son, you are the daughter of a king of God, and with that we can experience the world, the wilderness, the wandering, the pains, the goodness, and the sorrows of our lives. And as the chapters continue, it's about Jesus showing his messiahship, his kingship as one being sent by God. Uh, and here we enter into chapter 4, where now Jesus uses parables. And we'll talk more, a little bit more about different types of parables. But the reason why Jesus doesn't just come out up front saying, I am God, I, and here's what I bring. The kingdom of God is here, and here's what it looks like. Instead of just saying it outright, Jesus tells these stories, these, these parables. Uh, and it's not just to sh give fancy illustrations or, or, or riddles for people to solve. It's because Jesus wants people to navigate and wrestle with their faith. Now, what does that mean, Jesus? What are you talking about? And, and when we ask these questions, these are these are the exact questions that Jesus wants us to ask. This is the idea of the parable so that we can just wrestle with God's word. And may we do that this morning. And so our text comes from chapter 4. Uh, and one of the parables, there's several here, but we'll talk about one parable about what, if you've been around the church for a while, for a while about the mustard seed. And here's what uh, Jesus says. He said, also, this is what the kingdom of God is like. So he's saying, okay. You want to know what the kingdom of God is like? Well, let me, let me just give you a parable, an illustration. Uh, he says, uh, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants 
with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. Let's pray. God, thank you that you give us parables for us to just wrestle with what you're trying to say to us. And may we do that today. And God, may we see the kingdom of God through the lens of, 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 what, of your word, of it being a mustard seed that grows into something so big. May that be so for our faith. May that be so for our understanding of the kingdom of God. In your name we pray, amen and amen. Now, I remember in elementary school, now, now I know that oftentimes when I preach and I start off with a, with a story, it's, it's oftentimes a, a time of confession. Uh, and so uh, I'll do another one. When I was in elementary school, uh, you may not believe this about me, but I would oftentimes get in trouble. Uh, I don't know what it is, but I would always love to, you know, uh, give my teachers a hard time or, or my friends and I would be rebellious uh, and we would get in trouble. Uh, it, but there was this one time where there was a, I, if I remember correctly, it was a friend of mine and we got into a little uh, altercation for lack of a better word. And I've obviously, as a young elementary kid, I have no idea what it was about, uh, but one thing led to another, uh, and I got in trouble. We both got in trouble, and our parents were called. Now, again, I don't remember much of the story, but even today, as my mom and I, we laugh about it, she tells me that the result of this altercation was that you responded in a physical way where you scratched him in his face. Now, I don't know where I learned that from, but apparently that was my mode of self-defense at the time, uh, and uh, that's all I remember. But other than that, I also remember the car ride home. And I've told this story a few times because it's, it's so vivid that uh, when I got into the car from being sent home early as an elementary school kid, uh, I was expecting the car ride back to be my mom uh, perhaps raising her voice on what I did wrong and what I needed to fix. Or maybe she wanted to give me a lecture uh, of what I did and what I needed to do differently. Or maybe she was going to tell me what my punishment was, whether I was grounded or what was going to be taken away from me. I wasn't sure. But what I got was the very opposite and the very thing I didn't expect. I got absolute silence. Now, now, I don't know about your family systems, but in my family, when there's silence, you know it's bad. Because when I was getting into the car, my hope was that she would shout or she would tell me what I did wrong or she would lecture me or she'd give me, you know, my punishment or whatever it is. But instead, I got absolute silence and that 10-minute car ride from school to home felt like an hour. It was painful. And, I, and it made me think that there's something about silence that we don't do well with, especially here in the West in our society. There's something about silence that we feel like it's almost vindictive or we treat it like a punishment. And therefore, we all know that, uh, you know, when you get in a conflict with somebody or whatever it is, uh, we, there's a tool such as the silent treatment. Because we know how painful silence can be. 
And, and oftentimes we take that understanding of the silent treatment or silence being something that is uh, a form of punishment into our relationship with God. And for many of us, when we go through these dark and heavy seasons, regardless of what it is, maybe it's relational. Maybe there's a brokenness in your relationships, a breakup, a divorce. Maybe you're going through a health crisis, maybe a diagnosis. Maybe you're going through grief from a loss of a loved one, whether it's maybe it's finances, maybe it's struggles in your own family. And believe me, in the last two years, I've had to help people navigate or mediate uh, family polarization through the politics, through, you know, whatever it is. Uh, I've seen a lot of that. And oftentimes when we go through our own season of darkness, and maybe you can think of something right now. A pain, a struggle, maybe there's a part of your life where it just feels chaotic or maybe lonely or anxious or whatever it is. Oftentimes when we don't see solutions or resolutions in our lives, we just automatically assume that God is silent, that God is not moving. And and sometimes that's actually true. God is silent. Maybe you're not hearing from God and you don't know what your next step is. But because of this lens that we bring into what silence means, a.k.a. punishment, a.k.a. the silent treatment, we associate God's silence with the fact that God doesn't care, maybe at best, or maybe at worst, that God does not exist. And sadly to say, in the last especially two years, again, I've had pastor friends. I've had friends that I went to seminary with. I've had friends that have been devout Christians all of their lives, not only wrestle and navigate and deconstruct their faith, which I, which I think is all necessary, uh, a necessary part of our growth in our faith. I've seen people completely abandon and walk away from the faith because for so long they feel like God is just not there. And the only answer to that, that silence, that God not moving, that God not showing a better way, is that God must not exist at all. Maybe you feel that. Maybe you're there. I know that I've been there once or twice or three times or a million times in my life, and I know that it won't be the last time. I know that I'll experience a similar doubt and pain and sorrow and ask the question, God, where are you? And if you're being honest with yourself, perhaps you've asked that too, where, uh, you know, whether it's literally or, or figuratively or metaphorically or symbolically, we get on our knees and say, God, where are you? And maybe this morning you're asking the same thing, God, where are you? You see, <coughs> last week we saw Jesus being baptized by John, and again, this became an affirmation of his identity as he goes into the wilderness. But not only that, in John chapter, or Mark chapter 1, verse 14, it says, after John, so uh, a few verses later, it kind of skips a lot of things in between. Mark's uh, gospel is pretty concise. It, it skips a lot of events. But if just a few verses after the baptism, it says that after John was put in prison, so apparently John went to prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The good news of God. And the good news of God was this. The time has come, Jesus says. 
The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, for the first century Jews, this was news that, were, that they were waiting for, for for a long time. And when the message came that Jesus was going to get baptized, he did get baptized, and, and now he was ready to proclaim the good news that the Messiah was here, the time has come, the kingdom of God is now on earth. This was the news that the ancient Jews in the first century were waiting for. You see, it wasn't just this over-spiritual Element, although there was part of that, there was an actual physical uh, uh, element to what that meant. You see, they were living in a time of constant persecution. The, the Jews were living within the Roman Empire where they were constantly treated as second-class citizens. And this has ha- been happening for a very long time. And in their persecution, they were waiting for a savior. Now, I know that, again, oftentimes we think about this word savior, someone who will save us from our sins, someone that will save us and bring us to heaven. And yes, all of those things are true. There is definitely a spiritual component to calling Jesus our savior. But in the first century, they used the word savior as quite literal in their sense of persecution and oppression from the Roman Empire, which, which, which included uh, violence, which included taxation, which included marginalization and stigma from their own neighborhoods, they were quite literally waiting for someone to save them from that life. It was beyond just a spiritual sense. Yes, that was also true, but something very practical they were waiting for in their lives as a community was someone to save them from that persecution, from the Roman Empire. Now, many of these believe, many of these people believe that it was actually Jesus. They believed the words of John, that John was preparing the way for a Messiah, and when Jesus proclaimed who he was, Many of the Jews said, okay, this must be our guy. And so ultimately you can call the first followers of Jesus the first Christians. Now they didn't use the word Christian in the first century. They used, <coughs> excuse me, they used uh, the phrase the follower of the way. And so instead of Christians, they were followers of the way. And the way was with Jesus. Who, who proclaimed to be the Messiah, to be the Savior in their predicament under their oppression under the Roman Empire. Now, these new Christians or these new followers of the way, they probably had it worse than anyone else in their first century uh, ancient Near East society. They had it worse because they were hated on all sides. The Jews hated the the Christians or the followers of the way because they were seen as traitors. Many of them were Jews who converted into following Jesus. So they were seen as traitors in the Jewish community. Not only that, they were hated by the Roman Empire. In fact, even though the Roman Empire and the Jews, they didn't get along, but the one thing they had in common is that both groups hated the Christians. And the Roman Empire hated the Christians because they kept proclaiming that Messiah, that the Lord was this man named Jesus and not Caesar. 
And Caesar was a title for the emperor of Rome. At this time was Nero. And Nero didn't like that type of competition because according to the Roman Empire, there was only one Lord. The word Lord in the Greek word is Kyrios. And we think of this word Lord, just this, this word for God. And it's true, but the word Kyrios, Lord, literally means the one we follow. And so you can see how politically this word was very offensive. What are you talking about? Jesus is the Kyrios. There's only one Kyrios. There's only one Lord, the one person that we follow, and that's Nero. That's Caesar, the emperor of Rome. And so you can see why that the Christians had it worse. Both groups hated them and wanted to destroy not only their reputation, but their own lives, but their lives. Christians were a menace. Unlike the Jews, they were actually proselytizing. They were trying to convert people. They, would, they could not be quiet about the good news of Jesus. And you can see why they would become a problem. Now, because of this uprise of the people of the way, of proselytizing, of converting, of telling people that the Messiah, that the Lord is actually Jesus, Nero wanted to destroy this entire movement. Nero was Caesar, emperor at this time. So here's what history uh, agrees upon, although there's a little bit of space for debate. In, in 64 AD, there was a huge fire in Rome. This is a fact. This is in our history books. And most historians would agree uh, that this fire was intense. It lasted for about a week, about six to seven days, and it destroyed about two-thirds of Rome. Now, nobody knows for certain how the fire got started, but many historians would believe that Nero himself set Rome on fire in order to use Christians as an scapegoat to basically justify a war, a genocide, if you will, and to persecute the people of the way. There was a Roman historian in the late first century by the name of Tacitus who wasn't even a Christian. In fact, he was a Roman senator who wrote this about Nero. The Christians were made the subjects of sport. They were covered with the hides of wild beasts and worried to death by dogs. They were also nailed to crosses and set on fire. And when the, day, when the day waned, they were burned alive in order to become evening daylight. So you can see the type of persecution that Nero had for the Christians was quite atrocious and evil and vindictive. Now it's with this backdrop in mind, the mindset of the followers of the way was again that there was a redeemer. Now, in this atrocious persecution, as followers of the way, they also brought in their Jewish mindset saying, okay, in the midst of this persecution, there will be a redeemer. And we know who that redeemer is. It's Jesus. Jesus who will usher in the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus, again, in the beginning of Mark says, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, this was good news to them. 
The news that they have been waiting for. All right, finally, with all this persecution and death and violence, finally, we have a Savior, and the Savior is here. Jesus said the time has come. This is good news. I'm sure everybody in their community was excited. They're cheering, rah, rah, rah. It's go time. Things are going to be different. And yet, many of them were disappointed in what the kingdom of God would be like. Now, I don't know about you, but I bet for many of us sitting in this room or watching online, myself included, oftentimes we're desperate to hear that God is near. Because let's be honest, again, as I stated, it, always, it, it, it doesn't always feel that way. Again, maybe it's in this pandemic where people are dying and getting sick and people are divided over masks and, and vaccinations and, and, all, and everything else. And, or again, maybe it's a loss of a relationship or finances and all the things I named at the beginning or just plain anxiety and depression and loneliness. And I know how that feels firsthand. We say, God, where are you? In our doubts and our uncertainties, there's sometimes we just need to know that God is near. God, can you just show me that you're near? That's all I want. God, just come near to me. And many of us, we beg out of desperation, God, may I just feel your closeness, your nearness to me. But yet again, sometimes it feels like God's not answering. And we ask God, what is taking so long? What's taking so long? And what makes it worse that it is that in our mind, in our behavior, in our desires, our expectations have been conditioned by the myth of, uh, of immediacy and control. We've been conditioned to think and to desire and to want immediacy and control. In other words, I want things now. I want a resolution. What it, you can fill in the blank of what the problem is, but our responses, although our, our, our problems may all be different, but our responses is more or less the same, and our response is this. I want it now, the resolution, and I want it in this way, immediacy and control. I want it now, and I want the res resolution to look like in this way. And it's no surprise that we behave this way, and I do this as well. We live in this kind of society. You know, I can order merchandise, the exact thing that I want, online within seconds and have it at my door the next day. And anything other than one day to two days is unacceptable. I can order the exact food I want through an app, and it will be at my door within minutes. I can watch a show of my choice with a click of a button. And if a website takes <coughs> more than three seconds to load, that also is unacceptable and we scoff at it because it feels so archaic. And if we want to find a relationship or maybe even a one-night stand, one can do that by going onto an app and just swiping left or right. And, and believe me, there's nothing wrong with trying to find a relationship through, uh, through apps or online. I think that's a great way to meet people these days. But there's times where we abuse it for our own personal satisfaction at the expense of other people. And we see ads, uh, you know, whether it's online, whether it's at the grocery store, whether it's billboards, uh, that, that 
say that you can get rich quick, you can lose weight, you can get fit, you can get smarter instantly just by taking a pill or just by doing these three things. No wonder we have carried on this lens into our, our idea of God. God, when there's a problem, just like Netflix, just like Amazon, again, nothing wrong with those inherently. We use these, these devices. But the problem is we take this mentality and we apply it to God. Just like Netflix and Amazon, God, when I have a problem, I want to click a button and I want you to solve it. Not only right now, but in the way that I want to. And if it doesn't happen now, and if it doesn't happen in the way I want, then our response is, God, you are not listening. God, you are not there. God, you don't care about me. Don't you see what's happening? Aren't you listening to my prayers? And oftentimes our prayers aren't really a a concession for God or petition. Sometimes And oftentimes, if I'm being honest, my prayer is just telling God what to do. Dear God, you know what I'm going through. Now here's what I want you to do next. Here's the plan, God, X, Y, and Z. I do that all the time. We carry this kind of conditioning that we've learned into our expectation with God. But as we go again into chapter 4, we see that Jesus continuously saying the phrase, the kingdom of God is like, and then throws in several parables, different parables, to describe what the kingdom of God is like. Now this was Jesus' way of saying that, that in this time of persecution and pain and chaos and sorrow, there's a worldview that we can solve it with power and might and control. And Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is very different. And this is true not only to the first century Christians, the followers of the way, but it's true for us today. Yes, we may behave like God is, or we may want God to be like Netflix, the now and the way I want it. But Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is different. We can't view the kingdom of God in that lens because God is bigger than that. And the more and more we see God in that way, the more and more we will be disappointed. And so Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is actually, it's not like this, how you've learned, but it's actually like a mustard seed. Now, this was a very shocking statement. Not only was it a shocking statement, it was probably quite disappointing to the people of the way. Because again, they were hoping for a savior that would bring the new kingdom with might and power. They wanted a military-like figure as a savior perhaps even coming through in a violent way because that was probably what they thought was needed to overthrow the Roman Empire. Uh, Scholar and author of New Testament, Derek Flood, says this, many expected the Messiah to be a man of war and for the liberation to come through violent force. We see this reflected in the disciples' own expectations for Jesus. Jesus, however, did not come to take life, but to give his own life. The gospel is indeed about the Messiah's victory over evil and justice, but the Messiah's victory does not come through violent conquest and military force, but through restoration and healing, the very opposite of what people wanted and expected. 
Now again, the, the image of the, of the mustard seed was shocking and disappointing because they wanted a military figure. You see, the mustard seed wasn't actually the smallest seed of all the earth, though it says that. But the Bible was referring to a symbolic gesture. Proverbially, in the first century, the mustard seed was seen and was a symbol of something very, very small. Maybe not the smallest thing in the world, but when people heard, oh, it's like a mustard seed, they knew it referred to something as something tiny. It's kind of like today, or maybe people don't talk like this anymore, but I remember when I was growing up, people would call each other shrimp. Like if someone was small in stature, they would say, you're such a shrimp. Now we know that shrimp isn't necessarily the smallest thing in the world, but we know that when we hear that, it refers and it symbolizes something that was very small. In a very similar way, it's, it was like a, it's a total diss. Like, oh, man, you're like a mustard seed. Like people would know what they're talking about. And, but in this way, <clears throat> though it was seen as something negative, still, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. You can say, people, what, a mustard seed? No, we want big, we want powerful, we want now, we want something that'll, that'll you know, just overtake. See, the, the, the first Christians, even the ancient Jews, they wanted something now, and they wanted something in their own expectations, they, the way they wanted it, and how did they want it? They wanted a military force. They wanted a, a powerful figure. That's the way they wanted it. If they had control, which they didn't, but they wanted and didn't, they would have it in that way. But Jesus is saying, hey, get rid of all your expectations. The kingdom of God is coming, and it's actually like a mustard seed. So first of all, the mustard seed wasn't the smallest of the seed, of any seed. There were smaller seeds, like uh, the orchid seed. But not only that, the point of this whole parable was that Basically, we don't have to over-spiritualize it too much, is that there's something very small, symbolically small, that turns into something big. That is what the kingdom of God is like. And many translations say that uh, this seed turns into a big tree. And really a better translation for the Greek word lachanon, or lachanon, uh, is not tree, but it's shrub. A shrub is a better word for what this mustard seed turns into. And this shrub was even oftentimes illegal to plant in certain gardens in the first century because the problem with the shrub is that it was uncontrollable. It was essentially like a weed. Maybe you know of weeds in your own lawn. It's, it's uncontrollable. It's quite annoying, actually, and you can't stop it from growing. And so there's a message in here that not only is a kingdom of God something that starts small and turns into big, but it's also something you can't tame, you can't domesticate, you can't control, you can't have your own expectations of how God is going to work in this world because it's like a mustard seed, this annoying plant, this weed, this shrub that will grow and grow and grow, and there's nothing you can do about it. The kingdom of God is like a weed. The way that Jesus works in our own lives, in our own pains, in our own sorrows, in our own challenges, he works like a mustard seed. First, we don't see it. We don't see God moving. We don't often see 
the way God is working in our lives. Just like we don't see a seed germinate in the ground turning into something massive. We don't see it. We don't see how the roots work. We don't see how the plant works. We don't see how, you know, the technicalities of how this small seed grows into something big. We just know that it does. God is working in your life, whether you see it or not, whether you believe it or not. God is moving. So whatever challenge, whatever chaos, whatever mess, whatever heaviness that you bring to the table today or what you will experience, know that God is moving in our lives. But just like a mustard seed, we don't always see how things unfold. We don't see it, but we have to surrender and know and believe and have faith that God is moving. Because in Mark chapter 4, 32, it says, Yet, when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all the garden plants, with such big branches, and the birds can perch in its shade. I love this correlating verse in Ephesians chapter 3. It says, Now to him, who Jesus, who was able to do immeasurably more than what we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations and forever and ever. Amen. Paul is saying that you don't even know how God is working, but God is working. And the way God is working is actually better and far superior than the way you even want God to work. Because in our finite human minds, we have this plan, but God is like, I have something better. You may not know it. You may not know how it goes. You may not know, you know, the strategy or, or all these ins and outs of it. But our job is to be faithful and say, God, you are working whether I see it or not. And that is true for our lives and whatever we're going through. We don't see it. We don't see it. Number two, not only do we not see it, but we can't control it. The kingdom of God is invasive, untamable, untamable, uncontrollable, and we can't give it boundaries. We can't say how. We can't say when. And we have to surrender that control. God, here's what I want you to do. No, we can't do that. And that's for our own benefit. It's for our own benefit. God is moving and we can't see it, but God is also uncontrollable. God will move the way God needs to move. Believe that. Have faith in that. Surrender ourselves to that. We don't see it. We can't control it, but we can be faithful. And just like a seed growing one step at a time into a big plant, into a big shrub, we can also move one step at a time, believing that there's something about smallness that God blesses. One author, Jeff Manian, who wrote this book called Dream Big, Think Small, says this, a legacy of faithfulness is born from small, repeated acts. It's similar to many books that are out there that many of us read around habits, uh, how it compares to compound interest. Now, I'm no accountant or in finance, but the way that James Clear uh, describes it in our, in our habits is that one tiny habit, perhaps even each day, will grow into big benefits in our lives. He says this, habits are the compound interest of self-improvement. 
The same way that money multiplies through compound interest, the effects of your habits multiply as we repeat them. They seem to make little difference on any given day, and yet the impact they deliver over the months and years can be enormous. It is only when looking back two, five, perhaps ten years later that the value of good habits and the cost of bad ones become strikingly apparent. Now maybe you are in a season of waiting. And the message here is be faithful one step at a time. Maybe this is by increasing your intimacy with God. Maybe this is by reading just a verse or two a day to be reminded of God's goodness. Maybe it's a short prayer in the morning or at night or in the afternoon, whatever it is. Maybe it's these small acts of generosity to your friends or to your neighbors. But may we, in whatever season that we're in, know that just one act of faithfulness can bring about tremendous benefit to our lives and a tremendous amount of closeness to God so that we can believe that God is moving, whether we see it or not, in ways that we can imagine, unimaginable. And may that be true for our own lives. I want to invite the, the worship team back up as we close. <clears throat> and just for a moment... I would love for you to just close your eyes and just think of whatever season that you're in and to ask God, maybe, maybe you don't know, maybe the question is, God, what is my next small movement into intimacy with you so that I may believe that you are moving in our lives? Because many of us, we're having a hard time believing that God is present and I've been there, and I'll be there again. But God is moving, and God is working. May we name that. God, we thank you for your word and your promise that you're moving in our lives no matter what, whether we see it, whether we feel it or not. God, you are moving and so may we give up our own expectation of immediacy. May we give up our expectation of control. And may we just allow you to be God in our lives. Give us patience. Give us stillness. Give us obedience. And may the season of Lent, as we reflect upon your life, death, and resurrection, may that be our source of hope, in our source of anticipation that you are moving and that there will be a resurrection, that there will be good news, that Friday, that death is not the end of the story, but new life and joy and celebration is. And we'll thank you for that. In your name we pray, amen and amen. Let's finish off with singing songs of praise and worship to God.